Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're off to a very good start. Susan's new shoes have survived the ramp <laughs> test. <laughs> Catherine and I were slightly concerned. <laughs> um, my name is Ruth Wishart. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you to this session of um, the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And if I sound just a little weary this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, it's because I've been reading um, our guest's CV. Um, <laughs> outside of the day job as Professor of uh, Pharmacology at uh, Oxford and an equally prestigious uh, post as Director of the Royal Institution. She's authored a wide range of, of uh, academic papers and, of course, books. And uh, most importantly of all, of course, she's Chancellor of Heriot-Watt University. Um, her specialist subject is the mind, and the mind which she applies to it is quite dauntingly impressive. I have explained to her that um, for the benefit of, um, or certainly for my benefit, it would be helpful if she would couch uh, um, matters in, in the kind of scientific terms which uh, are easy to comprehend by the hard of thinking. And, uh, <laughs> and I hope she's taken that to heart. Um, one commentator uh, falling back in awe said she was like electricity, both shocking and illuminating. So let's bathe in the glow of the vital spark that's Susan Greenfield. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, masses of things to cover in this book, of course, Susan, but I think it might be interesting um, to, to start off by homing in on cyberspace and its impact both on the brain's development and in, indeed on society's development or lack of? Yeah, I think this is an issue that um, is concerning lots of people because most people here have got children or grandchildren, even if they themselves aren't getting increasingly engrossed with computers and somewhat bewildered by the fast pace of technology um, that, if you like, we can sum up by calling the screen technology. Um, in order to really think about what it's doing to our brains, um, am I allowed two minutes on the fastest brain research course in the country? Go for it. Okay, but don't time me, but you know, it will be about two minutes now. Yeah. Um, so why this is particularly important, and what perhaps not everyone realizes, is your brain is the most amazing bit about you. It's amazing because for 100,000 years that our speech has stalked the planet, no one but no one has had a brain like yours. They've probably got livers like yours, or lungs like yours, or hearts like yours, because we know these things can be transplanted and, and they're diseased. But no one has a brain quite like yours, and they never will again. And it's your brain that makes you so unique. Now, why is the brain so different from all the other bits of your body? And the answer is that it is very sensitive to everything that happens to you, every moment you're alive. And this is why you're different from, let's say, a goldfish. Now, let's be honest, you couldn't claim the goldfish had a great personality. Or perhaps you would, but <laughs> I bet you're a goldfish lover, Ruth, are you? No? Wrong. No, no, okay. So, so I'm not offending any goldfish Dogs lovers. Dogs are my thing. Yeah, okay. So, so if you had children or grandchildren had a goldfish and the goldfish died, while they were at school, you could sneak off to the shops and buy another goldfish. Yeah? Let's be brutal. And they wouldn't know any difference because the repertoire of a goldfish is pretty stereotyped. Now, you couldn't do that with cats or dogs. And even if they wanted you to, you certainly couldn't do it with their brothers or sisters. They might like that, but you can't change those. <laughs> and the reason is that the brain becomes, as it becomes more sophisticated, so the shift goes from the narrow dictates, the stereotypy, the rigid repertoire of a species' behavior determined by genes, by instinct, through to learning. 
And this is why we as a species occupy uh, more ecological niches than any other species on the planet. We don't run particularly fast. We don't see particularly well. We're not particularly strong. But what we do fantastically is adapt. We learn. And this is why the human brain, even compared to chimps, is so special. Your brain is exquisitely, exquisitely adaptable. So what happens is you're born with pretty much all the brain cells you'll ever have, but it's the growth of the connections between the brain cells that accounts the growth of the brain after birth. So even if you're a clone, that's to say an identical twin, you will have a unique pattern, a unique configuration of brain cell connections because these are in turn shaped and driven by experience. And can I, give, can I go beyond my two minutes to give one example of this? Yeah. You certainly can. So, okay, so this is now the second part of the course. You, know, you might say, well, where's the evidence for this? So, um, two, two examples. Um, one, I don't know how many people are familiar with London taxi drivers. I don't know about Edinburgh taxi drivers, if they're the same. But do people here have to learn an exam, the knowledge? There's no knowledge comparable. What they learn is how to charge exponentially. No. For it. <laughs> uh, so, so <laughs> As you may be aware, there's this exam called the knowledge they have to learn in London, which is an, a daunting exam because it's an oral exam. That is to say, when you go into the exam, you, you're the examiner and you say to me, take me from A to B, how are you going to do that? And I say, we go up this street, that street, and there's one-way system there. So a huge burden on what's called working memory. You don't have recourse to a manual. You can't look anything up, you can't write, you just have to recite it off. And in an ingenious study, they found that one of the areas in the brain, one of the areas relating to memory, was bigger in London taxi drivers than in other people. A fact not lost on the London taxi drivers. They've heard of this. I don't know if Edinburgh taxi drivers could serve as a control or not. But uh, another example is uh, piano playing, where um, you have three groups of adult human volunteers, none of whom could play the piano at all. And the control group, they always get, I'm afraid, the environment without the interesting bit thrown in. So they just had to stare at a piano for five days. Um, then you have people that physically played the piano. But the most interesting group was a third group who had to imagine they were playing the piano. And in the brain scans, the, um, the people that just had to stare at the piano, the controls, as you might imagine, the brain was literally unimpressed by that. Nothing happened in the scans. However, the scans of the people that were playing the piano showed a remarkable change even over five days. And most astonishing, those who imagined they were doing it showed a similar change. So even imagining, even imagining, even thinking, I'm sure there's some philosophers here out there in the darkness, um, even thinking, even a mental event as they would regard it, has a physical basis in the brain. So my whole point being, before we get on to answering your question, it's obviously going to be a long <laughs> afternoon. Uh, we only have an hour. Yeah, um, to start with. Yeah. Um, so the whole point being that your mind, for me, is the personalization of the brain in this way. So it was necessary to, to go through that. The course is now over. Now. Um, it was necessary to do that because I think people don't necessarily realize the impact of the environment on the brain if they don't realize how receptive the brain is. So we can now turn to the environment and the change in the environment, but as just, long be, as we just all before know about we do this, something yeah. you said there that was actually mm. fascinating on your, your, your piano um, mm. um, analogy. It, it sounded to me, as an in, incredibly lay person, it sounded to me that what you were saying is that the more work you give the brain to do, um, the bigger and better it gets. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit like a muscle. A little bit like a muscle, and we all know that however you exercise, that part of the, of the body will prosper and thrive and, and be strong. You use it or you lose it. So it's exactly like that. And when I was teaching uh, medical students, they had the opposite model. They had the bucket model of the brain, which was it had limited capacity, and once it was filled up, they couldn't learn anymore. And they thought they'd learned enough, and they couldn't learn anymore. But it's not like that. It's more like a kaleidoscope, if you remember those. You know, everything that happens reconfigures, rechanges. So forget the bucket model of the brain. There's no such thing as overworking the brain. 
The brain loves to learn. That's what brains do. And that's what we'll get on to, I think, part of the issues that we're going so to face. Cyber, the brain so, loves to So adapt. the brain in cyberspace. So now let's think about cyberspace. Um, and again, I'm aware of time, so you know, I'll just try and, and do one or two sort of summaries. Um, on average now, kids in the Western world are spending six hours a day in front of a screen. Now, given we've just talked about the vulnerability and the potential of the brain to adapt to the environment, I think it's an interesting question to ask, and I do this in the book. Living in two dimensions as you are on a screen, what impact could that have on these brain cell connections and then in turn on the way you might think? And I've been accused in the past of being a kind of Luddite and being alarmist, and I just want to do a health warning. I'm none of those things. I'm open-minded scientist, and I just want to share with you various scenarios, some of which may or may not come to pass. But I don't want to be complacent, and I don't want to say, oh, I'm white-hot technology, you know, forget the boring Luddites. Let's just evaluate it as calmly as possible. And I would turn or point, for example, to the alarming growth over the last 10 years in, let's say, Ritalin prescriptions for attention deficit disorder. Yeah? Mm. Um, this has now risen to 55,000 prescriptions for kids in one year alone. Now, why should there be, for example, a threefold increase in a drug prescribed for attention deficit? Could it have anything to do, just in part, I'm just asking the question, I'm not saying it's the case, with perhaps the attention span, the shorter attention span that might be mandated by a screen. There's just a suggestion, it's just a hypothesis that I think is at least worthy of mm. testing. Because when you think about it, when you're sitting in front of a computer, as opposed to reading a book, we'll come on to that in a minute, you press a button and something happens immediately, immediately. Part of the appeal of that, you press another button, something happens immediately. So I think the first issue to explore, to think about, to discuss, I'm not, is what about attention span? And we now have the I was horrified. I turned on the TV the other day, and they have your news updated 90 seconds. You're up 90 seconds. Why are we in such a rush? You know, why do we have to have news in 90 seconds? Why can't we have it longer? Yeah. Why can't we think about things and talk about and hear reports and so on? So the fact that it has an appeal, 90 seconds, you know, is, is one thought. Um, I think also the fact that compared to reading a book, one has perforce visual images. There's very few computers or games or programs that have just words which you read, you might as well read a book if you're reading that. Um, so we're having now visual images much longer in life than when we were growing up and we read comics and were weaned off them. So I'm just wondering, does this infantilize our brains at all? Does it stop us developing imaginations? And I'm sure everyone in this room, I've yet to meet the person, although I'm sure someone now put their hand up, who says um, the film they've just seen is better than the book. Everyone always says the book is better than the film. And it's like when you meet someone that you've heard on the radio a lot, and then you actually meet them physically, and you feel sort of let down, don't you, sometimes? I, I won't say who. I say, <laughs> you know, you often, meet, you often find oh, that. Oh, go don't on, you? yeah. You often find that. Not, but, you know, you often say, and you say, ugh, they can't look like that. My imagination, that, that's wrong. You know, they can't. And your own imagination, as a neuroscientist, it fascinates me hugely. What is going on in those neurons to create a world for you that when you read a novel is more real than the real world, otherwise you won't be reading it. Can I ask you then about, I mean, there's definitely. a... Um, yeah. a, 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 a you can have a second life yeah. in cyberspace now. Mm. That, although that's very much a, a mm. screen-based activity, mm. it also presupposes that you've got a huge imagination because you're having to create not just yourself and your own personality, but indeed your physical appearance and ah. that of all the people around ah, about you. Ah, you say that, you say that. But this is another... I just did. Yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> this is another issue. So we've had attention span, we've had visual imagery and imagination. Let's get on to identity. Um, 
it's too dark to ask for a show of hands, but can I assume everyone knows what Second Life is? Well, we can have a we can have a show. Uh, we can have a light. Yeah, okay. Audience participation. Now. Who know, who's got a Second Life? I don't mean what you're doing with your private yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's got an on-screen Second Life? How many? I would say about three. Yeah, out of six hundred. Yeah. Okay. So. Let's assume then that a lot of people won't put their hands up. They'd be scared we're going to ask some questions. So they won't. I know, I've already got that yeah, man's yeah, number yeah. up there, yeah. But okay, so Second Life for the vast majority of people is, as its name suggests, not a computer game. It's an alternative existence where you could be Vlad the Dragon Slayer, if you so chosen, um, where you can pay people to work for you in Second Life. Oxford University, not Harriet Watts, I'm relieved to, but Oxford University has an outpost in Second Life. Sweden has an embassy in Second Life. Does it have tuition fees? <laughs> I don't know, I haven't signed on myself for this, but, um, but it's very interesting, this notion you have a parallel life. Now, you might say, oh, well, and good, and what's the harm in that? You can use your imagination. What fun to be Vlad the Dragon Slayer rather than, you know, whatever you are. Yeah. Um, but the issue there is it's a world devoid of pheromones. It's a world devoid of body language in that sense. It's a world actually where autistic people feel very comfortable because what you're playing to are the same kind of scenarios that autistic people will, will work on, which is just movements and actions and, and no routines. And no human relations. And no, no real... So I would ask, if you spend your time on Second Life as opposed to, let's say, reading Jane Austen, will you have the same degree of empathy or ability to understand other people are thinking differently from you and feeling things differently from you? If the emphasis is on action and movement and killing dragons or whatever, rather than, as we're doing, reflecting and nodding... That there may be a difference in terms of what that does to your mind. So the imagination can say, yeah, I fancy being Vlad. But on the whole, that's not the same as being engrossed in a novel where your attention span is much longer, where you have no strong sensory stimulus at all, but you're focusing on the content. And I think this is really important. Can I elaborate no, on just, just, I'm yeah. just I'm putting in commas here just to, uh, ah. to, <laughs> for me to calm down um, and understand what you're saying because, yeah. I mean... I'm obviously, because um, I'm here and I love what I'm doing, I'm a book person by mm -hmm. inclination and I don't play video games by inclination, mm. but if I were of the video game generation, mm -hmm. I might say to you that, well, reading books are a very passive thing to be mm -hmm. doing, Absolutely. whereas video games are very interactive. And yeah. Okay, well, let, let's, let's unpack that. Um, it is indeed passive and it's linear and you are following someone else. You're following the author, the authority. But let's just think about that. So when you read a book, the author takes you by the hand and you go on a journey together. But it's a journey on which you are passive, you are led, and you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it might not be a journey you particularly like, but undoubtedly you will end up in a different place than where you started, different, yeah? Um, and then you go on another journey, and another, and you start because it is the nature of the human brain to make associations, to evaluate what happens in terms of what's happened previously. You will start to build up a conceptual framework. We call this a cognitive framework, if you like. Um, one based not just on strong sensations, but on relating one thing to something context. else. A context. So, uh, so this will give your journey, your reading of the book, a meaning or a significance that it wouldn't do to a very small child who'd been on very few journeys. The example I love to give is my brother, who I taught Shakespeare to, because I used to tyrannise him. He was a lot younger than me. And at three, he could recite off Macbeth. But he didn't understand it. What a surprise. Yeah. So he could, he could say, tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. So, but if you said, so what does out, out, brief candle mean? That must have gone down really well at the playgroup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, his, one, his one joke was, um, 
It's a tale told by an idiot, just like Susan. <laughs> I follow sound of his. That was his one bit of innovation there. But, um, so he didn't really understand what he was saying, although he could, because of course he had nothing to relate it to. He didn't know about the candle being a metaphor for, for life and death and so on. So the issue is that when you read a book, you develop this conceptual framework that's un endlessly updated and modified by these admittedly linear or passive journeys. Yeah? So that eventually you will yourself volunteer some ideas, some questions that are yours, that are not linear or passive. You will go onto Google, yes, you'll go onto the computer and you'll ask some very interesting questions. You'll evaluate what comes up in terms of the conceptual framework. And for me, that's what an education is. Education is that. But, you, but you're saying mm. more than that in mm. the book, with respect. You're not just saying that um, books are in inherently more valuable in terms of mm. contextualizing experience and growing from that, that mm. experience. You're also suggesting, I think, that um, too much um, virtual life and too little yeah. real life is going to have a, a serious impact sociologically. Yeah, well, yeah, so, so just to carry on that thought about content, because I think it's really important, that if meaning or significance the very issues that eluded my brother are the ability to relate one thing to something else. This is how we relate ourselves. We relate ourselves to our past and our future. Human beings, up until now at least, have been, as we've grown, dependent on context and significance. It's what it means to you, not just how bright or how fast or how sweet or how cold as it is for a small child. It has a significance to you that it might not have to someone else. And this is what gives life its meaning, its relevance, its continuity. So when you read a book, you care very much about the characters. That's the whole point. It's the context of the characters. When you play a computer game to rescue a princess, do you really care about the princess? Do you care about her? But when you read a book, you care very much about the princess. What about, That's the difference. Do you remember, though, two or three Christmases ago, or maybe longer, um, there was a, uh, was it a Tagamachi? It was a, it was a virtual dog. Yeah, yeah. And children got desperately upset because it was programmed so that if you didn't feed the dog the correct number of times, the dog would, quotes, die. Mm -hmm. Now, that suggests that the child... I mean, whether it's a good or bad thing, and I think it was horrible, but mm -hmm. it does suggest that the child is emotionally engaged with, with that virtual image. Sure, but I'm saying it's in the future that if you live in two dimensions, not even holding something and it responding. Incidentally, um, I played a game with um, some sons of a friend of mine who had a dog called Blaze, and meanwhile there was a little, um, little Japanese mechanical dog that was coming out called Ibo, meaning companion. And I said to them, well, would you rather have Ibo or would you rather have Blaze? And they said, no, Blaze. And I said, well, what does Blaze do that Ibo doesn't do? You know, Ibo sits up and begs, Ibo barks. Ibo. And you could see these kids couldn't quite grasp, in, although intuitively they felt that the mechanical dog was not the same as the real dog, even though they couldn't articulate why or didn't know why. So I think up until now, yes, because if you're brought up in three dimensions and you're living with ongoing human relationships, that's fine. My concern is for the future that if you're sitting in front of a two-dimensional screen evaluating actions rather than meaning, the whole emphasis shifts. So there's a very good book, which I cite a lot in my book, and I, I would urge people to buy this, called um, Everything That Is Bad Is Good For You, which is a very good book by someone called Stephen Johnson, who actually puts a strong case for screen technologies, a very persuasive case, and it's a beautifully written and good book. And his whole point is that this might account for the upward shift in IQ, for example, because he says the very skills required in a computer game, and again, I don't want to sound down on computer games, are the very skills that are good in IQ tests, that is to say, looking at patterns, seeing connections, reaching a solution, and so on, but it's abstract. So the emphasis is on the thrill of getting something right, irrespective of what it is. So it doesn't matter whether you're slaying a dragon or rescuing a princess, the thrill is that you've done the game or you've beaten the game. And it's that, that notion of process, which of course is important for us some of the time, my own concern is that shifting, that we're getting more emphasis on process over content. That is to say, the here and now thrill of the experience of a moment, which let's not knock it, is great, yeah? 
that that might over-dominate or over-emphasize um, at the expense of, of the content or the narrative. You also seem to make the connection in the book between that kind of um, uh, thrill overdose, if you like, that, that video games might encourage and the kind of things that we all have seen and experienced in real life, like mm -hmm. road rage. Yeah. Um, what's very interesting, if one buys into my particular definition of the mind, which is the personalization of the brain through these connections, it follows we can talk about losing the mind or blowing the mind. Now, one way of doing this is, of course, as people have done for a long time, they take drugs, psychoactive drugs, which impairs how those connections are working. So as I've said when I've lectured against drugs to school children, blowing the mind might be exactly what you are doing when you do that. You know, you're mm. And we talk about letting ourselves go. Yeah, which I think is an ecstasy in Greek means to stand outside of yourself. Um, now, not people when I say buying to making drugs, but putting yourself in an environment with strong sensations, with little cognitive content. For example, going to a rave, which I haven't done. I don't know if you have, but I imagine. But you go. Techno, techno, techno. Yeah, I know. But apparently, there's just flashing lights, and and there's a premium on the strong senses, but not on content. It's a world stripped of all cognitive content. I gather. Yeah or downhill skiing, or refined wine, or food. So I'm not trying to sound overly puritanical here, because I like doing those things. I like having a nice glass of wine and food and all and the all rest the and dancing. Well, yeah. yeah, and all those things, yeah. So I'm not saying that we can't have a sensational time. There's different ways we've done that throughout humanity. But what concerns me is that whilst before we've had this rather interesting balance between the sensational, the abrogation of the sense of self, the blowing of the mind, against the development of the self, developing the mind, getting a sense of fulfillment and a context and so on, that that subtle balance, which has characterized human nature, I think, for all the time we've been around, is that now is, and I'm asking it as a question, is it possibly now in jeopardy in the face of these rather strange, invasive and pervasive technologies? It's interesting. One of the other forms of uh, fine madness that you, that you oh, yes. articulate is, is, is being in love as yeah, a, yeah. a state of uh, hopefully temporary insanity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure whether we would want a cure for that, would we? Uh, <laughs> well, then, yes and no, because if I think one hopes that the in love shifts to loving, uh, you know, where you can put your feet back on the ground a little bit. But there is something, you know, that lovely 30s song, which I won't, I won't empty the tent by attempting to sing. Uh, love is the sweetest thing. You know that that lovely um, excitement and obsession, which is actually very is parallel to, to mental illness, actually, where you can't eat, you can't sleep. You know, you are completely obsessed with the thing. And and you get very excited. And so, so, but it usually only lasts for enough time that not in normal biological circumstances would allow for um, uh, conception. <laughs> and then things change. It's usually <laughs> about six months. So, so. <laughs> it doesn't say much for the prospect of creating siblings, does it? Um, I don't want to hog any more of you, Susan, because the audience is dying to talk to you. But just, uh, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about your principal area of research, mm -hmm. which is uh, uh, the pharmacological journey to looking into Alzheimer's yes. and um, both, both cause and possible cure. Yeah. So would you like to tell us where we've got to with that? Yes, I would. And can I just issue the big health warming that I'm speaking to you as a scientist, not as a clinician. I'm not a clinician. And I'm sharing with you what we find in the lab, and that is a long way away from what is translated into the clinic. So I'm sure, given there's so many people here, there must be at least one or two whose lives are touched by this terrible disease, who have carers or people close to them who have this disease. So can I say, please do not think there is a miracle cure around the corner. So what I'm going to say, I just want to do that rather sobering health hormone. Could first. you start with a snapshot of what happens to yeah. the brain? Okay, so let's go back to the mind and how that is the personalization of the brain through the growth of connections. And when you are born, initially it's in the words of the great William James into a booming, buzzing confusion. You evaluate the world, 
in terms of senses, how sweet, how fast, how cold, how bright. But gradually, um, a colour and a texture and a smell and a voice and a pattern will co-occur again and again and again. So like with the taxi drivers, like with the piano players, this will set in your brain a particular pattern of connections that you will call mother, let's say. And if mother features again and again and again in your life, like with the taxi drivers, like with the piano players, more and more connections will form around that image. She will mean a lot to you that she doesn't mean to someone else. So that's how we can think about developing the mind, as it were. Now imagine if those connections were dismantled. Gradually, things that enabled you to evaluate the world, that gave the world a meaning or a significance, the checks and balances of reality that enabled you to understand mm. things, see one thing to, gradually that would slip away. And gradually, things that were special, personal to you would become less so. And in the end, even someone that triggered many, many, many connections and therefore was the most robust in terms of um, being reversed, even that eventually, sadly, and that's what dementia is. It's, it's, the, it's the unpicking of the connections. It's the recapitulation again into a world that is confusing, disorientating, that has less significance over time, where you go back to evaluating exactly what's happening to you in terms of the senses. And can these yeah. broken connections be re-established? So well, what we're working on, and I, 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 again, another big health warning, many people have many different approaches to Alzheimer's, and all of them are good. And just as a political aside, I wish the government would invest more money into letting a thousand flowers bloom and letting as many different approaches flourish as they can because none of us have got the answer yet. Yeah? So there's epidemiology, there's toxicology, there's molecular biology. And I myself am a neurochemist, pharmacology is my area. So my particular approach is twofold. And what we're working on is the following dream, and I do stress it's a dream. Two scenarios we work on in parallel. Each on their own would be fantastic if we could do it. Scenario A. You go to the doctor routinely, like you might go for a bone screen or, or, or breast screening. Over a certain age or to a certain risk group, you go to the doctor and have a blood test. And the doctor is able to tell you, even though you have no symptoms, if perhaps you either have Alzheimer's or Parkinson's coming on. You won't have it yet, but they could say, but we now know that you're pre-symptomatic, but it, you know, the, your, the, your marker is different, so we could start your medication right away even the existing medication, if NICE allowed it, you know, would, um, it would be helpful. You can also rather ghoulishly perhaps plan your future. And if you want to go on the world tour, now you'd go. Right? So there is some merit to that. And it would also, most importantly, bring down the cost of clinical trials for drugs because the person could be their own basis of comparison. So that in itself would be a big advance if we had what's called a marker, a surrogate marker for neurodegeneration. So that's the first thing we're working on. Now let's think of scenario B. You have already, let's say, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, and you go to the doctor and say, we've just had this brilliant discovery. We've got a drug now that stops any more cells dying. So if you take this drug every day, then you might have memory problems now or movement problems now, but they won't get any worse. They'll be stable. And again, anyone who's been touched by these diseases would know that would be a wonderful prospect. They're both dreams, by the way. Now put those two scenarios together. You go to the doctor. You have your routine blood test, and he says, oh, actually, now we're seeing this marker's elevated. That's the bad news. You've, you've got the signs, sorry, not the symptoms, but you've got already a um, sign that uh, you, you've got neurodegeneration. The symptoms haven't come on yet. So the good news, take this other medication, scenario B, take it every day. No more cells will die, so the symptoms will never come on. And if That's that my dream. So the dream is it will be coupled with a blood test, initially, and then oral medication of a drug every day, which means that you wouldn't have a complete pristine brain again, 
but the symptoms would never occur. And if the symptoms never occur, then you know, who cares? I mean, that's fine. That's but is that a realistic thing. dream rather than a fantasy? It's, it's, a, it's a bit between the two. When I say a realistic dream, yes, but it is in terms of the, the time scale is one that some might regard as a fantasy. It's not going to happen tomorrow. We're working on it, but it's at the stage in the lab. We're not even close to doing this in trials or anything like that. So, but that, at least we have the concept and we have the idea. I mean, if you have a concept and an idea, then it's more than a fantasy, but it's way off between, before being a reality. But the reason I've gone into detail about it is to just explain the kind of strategies we think about, the kind of ways we do it. And again, I do stress that's my particular approach. Other people are working with many other ingenious and exotic and exciting technologies, and good luck to them. Let's hope. I mean, the main thing is that we get this cracked. Yeah? Regardless so, of how. Yeah, regardless of how. So that's just our approach, which um, I just share with you. But I share it with you as a dream, not as a reality. OK, well, if we could have the lights up now, please, because we'll, there's, there's masses of stuff in this book. This um, Susan's new book, um, The Quest for Identity in the 21st Century, ranges over a, an extraordinary uh, amount of, of, of work, both not just, as I was suggesting earlier, not just in terms of the pharma, uh, pharmacology, but in terms of sociology. And uh, um, I'm sure there are lots of people who would like to ask a question. There's one hand up already, but uh, could I just say quickly for the first timers, the virgins amongst you, that we've got two mics, and could you wait until... One of them comes to you. That gentleman over there. Thank you. Yes, you. You talked about the brain uh, in individuals. And surely, in terms of education, they're becoming more and more individualist. Uh, similarly, at home, no longer playing with others outside. And similarly with consumerism. And surely more emphasis should be on the social aspects and not merely the individual aspects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think we need to think about what we mean by an individual, what I call in, in my book the someone scenario, as opposed to no one scenario. Because if you are just reacting to a screen or just being a consumer, that's not necessarily celebrating or expressing individuality. It could be that you're just saying yuck and wow and just reacting to whatever comes along. Um, there's a very interesting issue of Bernays, who was the nephew of Freud um, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, pioneered advertising. And he latched onto this notion that you could get people, because in those days, uh, in the capitalist economy, you had to get people to buy things they didn't need. So you had to persuade them they wanted something. Um, and the best way of doing that was this idea that whatever you had would say something about you, would express your individuality. So he had uh, very pretty young girls at a time when women didn't smoke and they wanted to open up the market to get women to smoke, um, actually holding the cigarette saying, the torch of freedom, because that would say something about you. Yes? Um, and this notion, you can still see it in advertising today, you know, the kitchen that's individual as you are, you know, the trainers that say something about you. And then you go home and find your neighbor has the same trainers or the same. And you enter into this arms race. Of so I think what I'm saying is that I would not equate individuality with being isolated or a consumer, quite the reverse. I think that what we need to think about collective society, how in the 21st century we can help people become truly individual and not influenced by peer group pressures, not influenced by mass movements or ideologies but to discover their own portfolio of talents to lead fulfilling and interesting lives. Because up until now, my mother's generation, for example, she was dodging bombs in the Blitz in London. And my grandmother uh, was worried about just keeping, getting coal for the family because they were very poor and pawning her wedding ring and so on. So they were not worried about whether they're individuals, they were worried about survival. 
and this generation in the West, now we have this huge luxury afforded by science and technology of A, living a lot longer than my grandmother thought she was going to live, um, and also having more hours during the day freed up from the drudgery that characterized their lives. So this is a particularly important question that you're flagging now, and I think one that wasn't necessarily bedeviling our mass previous generations, a few intellectuals perhaps, but not everyone as it can now, which is, what are your talents? What do you want to be? What's the meaning of your life? Where are you going to go with it? How are you going to be an individual? What are you going to express? And I think that certainly just blind consumerism and certainly playing computer games is not the answer. More questions? There's somebody, two there, one on the aisle and then a blue shirt further up the back. Uh, how would you relate to Richard Dawkins and uh, the evolutionary concept and do you think uh, the brain uh, as it dies uh, precludes any possibility of a soul? Okay, thank you for that question. It's a shame we haven't got... How many hours have we got left, <laughs> I thought we'd throw the easy one in just... Yeah, well, just... Okay, so let, let me take that step by step because it's a very interesting question. I want to do justice to it and the chairwoman, man... Person. Will kick person will kick me in the ankle if I, if I go over. Let's think first about the soul, which was perhaps the easiest part of your question compared to the rest. Um, and again, I'm not a theologian, but there might be those who are more versed than me. But for me, as a naive scientist, uh, the whole point of a soul, whether you believe in it or not, the concept of a soul is that it's immortal, the immortal soul. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's different from a mind or a brain, because both the brain and indeed its personalization, as I call it, the mind, both of those are perishable. So I would argue that we can clearly draw a line between the soul, whether you believe it or not, it's another issue, but the concept of a soul, and the mind and brain. Now, I deal in the mind and brain. I know zip about the soul. I'm not a theologian. So I would say, render unto the neuroscientists the things that are the neuroscientists, <laughs> render unto them. So um, I respect um, people who believe in the soul. I respect people who don't believe in the soul, but it's not an area that I can bring my science to elucidate. Yeah? So, so let's just park that, and I think I'm very comfortable with the concept of a soul. Whether we believe in it or not is another issue. I'm comfortable with the concept, and, and I'm comfortable in defining it as I have as something different from the mind because of its immortality. So now let's get on to the much trickier issue of how I would compare with Richard Dawkins. Um, my own view... You're prettier. Uh, well, <laughs> that's a but he hasn't got shoes like mine, has he? Yeah. I rather hope not. <laughs> I'll be more fun. <laughs> um, so, okay, so my own view, again, is that science should be truly open-minded and that as scientists, we ask questions always. And when I was um, examining medical students for an entrance to Oxford, I didn't go on what they knew, but on what questions they asked, on how curious they were intellectually. And for me, it's a sign of someone's intellect, not someone who knows all the answers, as Thurber said, but someone, he said, it's better to ask some of the questions than know all of the answers. So I always evaluate someone and try myself on how many questions that they ask and keep an open mind. Now, I find some things very interesting. For example, the man who um, actually was responsible for mapping the human genome, a very, very um, acclaimed and good scientist, is a committed Christian, as are many very very impressive scientists, talented scientists. They have very personal faith. Yeah? So my first question, were Dawkins here? And it's a shame he's not, of course, because it's always you know, unfortunate if someone's no, not we'd here. We'd never do it in an hour. No, no. Well, perhaps he could do it by ESP. I'm sure he wouldn't mind that. Um, I'd like to say, well, how would you account for that? You can't just dismiss those kind of things. Now, I myself was raised in a secular way. I'm half Jewish, half Christian. So I was brought up in a non-religious environment. And I always felt that I was almost autistic looking in onto people that had been brought up 
in an environment that, for want of a better word, was spiritual. I won't say any one particular religion, but one that was away from the non-material. Yeah. So for me, it's something that I don't understand at the visceral level. I certainly don't understand it neuroscientifically, but I do have a chapter on belief in the book because it's something that I, I can see many facets to explore and try and question and to probe. If you take the very notion of belief, it's very interesting. What is a belief? How is a belief laid down? What accounts for its permanence in the face of, let's take some, I'll just say, okay, let's take a sexist belief, yeah? That all men are superior, yeah? Despite evidence the contrary, they still find it. Yeah? So, where is this? Overwhelming where, evidence. Yeah, I'm overwhelming evidence. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm just doing that to get things away from the slightly sensitive issue of religion, but, and it also fascinates me how you would have a secular belief like that relating to a religious belief. Are there the same mechanisms in the brain? The same processes, could one substitute for the other? For example, could a religious belief act as a placebo? Could it make you feel better? So there's many interesting questions we can ask about belief. There's many interesting questions that we can ask about spirituality and why, people, why every civilization has had religion, for example. So I'm very much standing from the outside looking in, being brought up as I was in a secular environment, uh, but nonetheless trying to be a scientist with an open mind. And I think to copy the Taliban is not a very scientific thing to do. So to tell people they're stupid and they're wrong, um, or to just talk about, um, what is it, logic, um, as though that was a religion. As Niels Bohr said once, he said to a student once, um, you're not thinking, you're just being logical. Yeah? <laughs> and so to talk about reason as though it was itself a religion or a doctrine when it's just merely a strategy, one of many, um, I've, I, find it, I find it rather shame, actually, because there's so many questions we can ask and so many questions and discussions we can have rather than shutting the door on them. So um, I could go on about this, but I say... Let's, let's get some more questions. Yeah, before I get sued for libel or something. As a, I'm or certainly going to borrow that. You're just being logical. You're not thinking. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Susan, you, you put... Well, in your opening remarks, you certainly put a, a premium on literacy. Yes. And obviously, this audience is a self-selecting audience. We're at so. a book festival. But when I observed my 19-year-old daughter, and now she's dyslexic, so she doesn't tend to read books, mm -hmm. but she's online, um, she does IMing, she does you know, read blogs, mm -hmm. um, she's texting to her friends all the time, she's watching DVDs and hunting down the, her, her favourite cult TV programmes and so mm -hmm. forth, and she's, she's messaging to people all over the world, mm -hmm. all the time, and it seems to me she has a much richer experience as a teenager than mm -hmm. I had, mm -hmm. when I was, you know, limited to two TV channels, yeah. I didn't even have a, have a phone in the house, yeah. certainly didn't have a mobile, yeah. you know, it's a much, much richer experience these days for mm -hmm. kids to communicate with each other mm. in very rich ways. I'm not talking about kids, I mean, obviously there is a problem with computer games. Yeah. My, my daughter doesn't play computer games. Yeah. You know, she does, she dabbles at it, but she, she spends all her time um, communicating in mm -hmm. a way that seems to me is much more natural for the human being. Literacy has only been around for a couple of hundred sure. years. Okay, so can I say again, I don't want to demonise all technology. Um, it's more the issue of how we harness it to deliver what we want, rather than, because it's a technology, like all technology, and science can be used for good and ill, and clearly your daughter, and from what you say, is using it to benefit. But it does bring to mind a conversation I had with a, someone in their 20s the other day who said they had 900 friends on Facebook. Yeah? And I said, well, I've got 10 friends yeah, only, um, because they take up quite a lot of my time, these 10 friends. Yeah, that's bad enough. You know, having long conversations with them on the phone, meeting them, having coffee, seeing all their problems, taking all my problems, sharing gossip secrets, you know, fantasies, um, nostalgia. Takes up quite a lot. And I said, 900 friends, you know? How are we defining friends? Yeah. So I think 
what we have to think about is where we want to be. Now, I'm not in any way, so if, if you're happy, if she's happy, that's great. If she's fulfilled, fine. But I think that what we mustn't equate is, let's say, the traditional notion of a friend and a friend on Facebook. And I think that's very different, any more than we'd equate texting with writing a letter, as people did in the middle of the last century. Whether we want it, whether there's one is good, one is bad, how we mix the two, these are things for us to debate and discuss. Yeah? All I'm doing is laying before people the scenarios and the issues and the questions that we can then incorporate. But as regards to telly, it's interesting you say that, because I, true, grew up uh, with one, one TV channel, BBC, then ITV, with one telly in the house. But there, the technology was integrated into our culture. That is to say, we would have this one telly, we'd all sit around it, eating snacks on our knees, and discussing the TV program as it happened, perhaps more analogous to singing around the Victorian piano in previous generations. It would be the TV was integrated into our family culture and was part of our family culture, not the other way around. And what I fear, and I'm not in any way saying this with your daughter, but for some, less fortunate, it might be for the first time ever we have a technology taking over a culture rather than the other way around. Interesting, though, in terms of human relationships and um, keeping that kind of family unit important, um, I know lots of people in my life who ubiquitously talk to their far-flung children and grandchildren thanks to Skype. Yeah. And, and they're, so, so they're getting a visual image, they're able to talk mm -hmm. to them, and perhaps in a letter-writing age they'd have sent a little blue ear, ear mail mm -hmm. envelope and it would yeah. have taken forever to arrive yeah. and one would come back yeah. when the news was far too stale to matter. So, I mean, that seems to be quite a positive development. No, yes, there are many positive things. I mean, perhaps the most obvious and fantastic thing is MIT, who've put all their courses on the web. So you can't actually get credits by doing, but it means anyone with access to a computer can, can do a course from MIT, which is, you know, it just makes you shiver to think of that. You know? so, sure. so clearly, I and mean, I'm taking it as a given, that there are those kinds of benefits. But we mustn't confuse information with knowledge. Yeah? And what I fear is that it's a little bit like giving a small child the keys to a car, saying, go and teach yourself to drive. It's not saying the car is bad, but when the kid smashes itself up, the we should think about how we do it. it. Yeah. Yes. The gentleman there, thank you. And then a lady further up. Yeah. Thank you. An Alzheimer's question. We've all got this view that Alzheimer's to do with plaques in the brain and prions and whatever. What do you make of this research I've been reading about recently where people have had very positive results from anti-inflammatory drugs? Yeah, I think um, the, the gentleman here was referring to various markers in the brain that are characteristic of, of the um, brains of Alzheimer's. Um, Inflammation occurs as a result of injury to the brain or damage or something wrong. So um, rather like with the medication that's used, and I could get technical in a second, um, it's on, it's, it's sometimes it's looking after the event. It's looking at subsequent issues. It doesn't answer the question of why did the brain start to have the connections dismantled in the first place. I should stress that is not to knock the strategy. For example, the conventional approach of taking Aricept which inhibits a particular enzyme that normally munches up a chemical messenger. That messenger is dwindling in Alzheimer's because the cells that produce it die. So therefore, Aricept can have an effect. So with anti-inflammatories, again, one can help by um, mopping up the damage, if you like. Um, but our particular approach is to say, why did the cells die in the first place? Um, the answer is that there's only certain cells that are vulnerable in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Not, it's not generic. Um, it's not a generic feature of brain cells to degenerate. Yeah. My own father had a stroke, for example, and he's now got his driving license back, and he's 90. Yeah. So he doesn't drive, but he would like to. Yeah. Um, so you know, if it's in a certain part of the brain, you're fine. Well, not fine, but you don't get Alzheimer's. What we work on is this finding that the cells that are lost in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's 
come from a different part of the embryo during development, and they have got different properties in other parts of the cells. And what they are able to do is to try and grow again, unlike other cells. Now, that might seem a good thing, but the very mechanisms that are used to grow in the environment of a mature brain can actually be toxic. And so that's why we think it causes it. That's not to say that once they've died, then there'll be inflammation and anti-inflammatories help any further cell loss. Of course, that's, that's a, a good approach. But for my own money, and of course, when you ask me about my own work, it's a bit like asking me about my own child as opposed to someone else's child. One's obviously monumentally biased. Yeah? So I'm monumentally biased. Um, but I'm saying that I think we are asking, why do the cells die in the first place? These other approaches are, if you like, following up, trying to contain the damage. But that's not to denigrate them. That's fine. That's good if it works. There's a lady up at the back, and then there's another lady here. You've briefly touched on... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you've briefly touched on ESP, and you mentioned the effectiveness of when you're imagining playing a piano, mm -hmm. that actually mm -hmm. it's as useful. How do you feel about telepathy and whether you can actually <coughs> send connected thoughts? Well, I said, being an open-minded scientist, I wouldn't, as some might, just say, oh, it's all automatically rubbish, because I think... That's a non-scientific response. Yeah? You have to say, well, what's the evidence? How would it be possible? Would it invoke a new type of physics or that we haven't heard of? And all of those answers might be yes. Um, so again, I'm very open to seeing it. I, I couldn't rule things out the same as one wouldn't rule out just because something is alien or strange sounding. You wouldn't say that's impossible. So I don't have a strong view either way because I'm not, I, I don't know what the evidence is. I don't know how convincing the evidence is. But by the same token, so much we found that would have been, you know, even 10 or 20 years ago regarded as crazy, we are finding out occurs. And certainly with the brain, it has so many secrets and surprises, um, not least how it works with the immune system and the endocrine system. So a thought can make you better in a placebo. I mean, that's an amazing idea. Um, that I wouldn't be that arrogant to dismiss any scenario. Um, but by the same token, I wouldn't wholeheartedly and enthusiastically embrace it because it sounds, it sounds cozy or it sounds exciting. So I just have an open mind on that, I'm afraid. Sorry to sound boring in my answer, but in, in better that. Better to be boring and accurate than dogmatic and wrong. Yeah, I think. In, uh, oh, yeah. in everyday life, not, not sort of, uh, scientific experiments, but in yeah. everyday life there are endless instances of people picking up a phone to yes. dial somebody who was just about to dial yeah. them. Now, is that just always well, coincidence? Well, Jung, I don't know if there's any Jungians here, had this notion of synchronicity, where things just happen and there seems to be coincidences. And again, who knows? I mean... Well, we've all experienced those kinds of mm. kinds of things, and I think one should just perhaps enjoy them, ask questions about them, but to say emphatically they're right or wrong is harking on to the thing I've fought all my life, which is bigotry and prejudice in any form. Yeah, and I think we should always keep an open mind, whether it's evaluating people, whether it's evaluating ideas. We should just keep an open mind, and the worst thing is to make assumptions. Um, I work in the recruitment of graduates um, and have done in the last, uh, for the last decade and have seen an exponential rise in women going in, or you know, young mm -hmm. girls going into technology. But I don't see the same, um, by any measure, uh, rise of them choosing it as a career. Mm. Can you explain <laughs> why that might be the case? And secondly, um, does that mean I give up my gym, gym membership and just think about going on the track? <laughs> I wish, oh yes, isn't it? It's like thinking that the chocolates are calorie-free that day. That'd be nice, and they magically are. Um, okay, so again, this is another hour-long answer, right? Is that um, no. <laughs> um, okay, so just a, just a pleasure. I did do a report for the then 
Secretary of State Patricia Hill when she was at the DTI on recruitment and retention of women in, in science, engineering, and technology. So I'll now refer to that, which is a few years old. But the issue there is that um, at the early stages for girls, um, especially in biomedical sciences, it's as attractive, as exciting as any other branch or profession. Not least, I think, because it relates very easily to people and to what is laughably called real life, yeah? um, as opposed to the physical sciences, where from a much earlier age, it's a 90-10 divide, as opposed to biomedical, which starts off as 50-50. I think there's a whole range of sociological and socioeconomic forces that are then hard on women pursuing and staying in science and technology as a career. Not least the fact that if you are in the public sector of universities and you are an academic bent on a research career, you won't have tenure, you won't have a guaranteed retiring age until, if you're lucky, you're early to mid-30s, by which time you probably decide whether or not you're going to have children, you're past your biological optimum. Um, so it's a real problem, and I've said this many times, not so much that women who do science shouldn't or can't have children, but how they do this. And I have to do a plug here for uh, something we've done at the Royal Institution, with L'Oreal, which is to have fellowships for women who are trying to return uh, while they still are on soft money, on non-tenured. And we had, we thought, this was the first year of the competition last year, we had over 100 applicants, we had 150 this time for about four fellowships, yeah, which gives them a small amount of money to spend on childcare or a microscope or whatever they want. It is a real problem, and until the government, and it has to be the government, put serious money into helping women have children and return in a ring-fenced way where they're competing like for like for fellowships, for grants, and so on, it's going to carry on being an issue. The second issue, I don't want to you know, uh, dignify women completely, um, is the female mentality that they're not good enough quite often. And they've often said that a man will go in promoting the seven out of ten desiderata that are required in a job. A woman will go in apologizing for the three that she doesn't have while the men are so, so. You know, there is, there is an issue of confidence in women and trying to mentor and help women um, have more confidence rather than being more defensive as, as they are. And then there is the rank prejudice, yeah. And there, there was a, a study in Nature, actually, of the Swedish Medical Research Council, albeit 10 years ago, but still valid, I think, today, looking at the perception of women against their actual impact value in their publishing. And the best woman, the best scoring women, were judged about the same as a low average man. Would a, a man like to speak? <laughs> we have so one lots up of there. issues. We have one up so, there, yes, so. thank you. It's always at the back and it's always yeah. at the wrong end of the row. <laughs> um, I've got a question about identity mm -hmm. um, per se. Um, there's a sort of maybe one view of identity, which is de it's defined from within. Yeah. Another that it's sort of defined from without, and it's sort of thrown into sharp relief by like the National Identity Register program mm -hmm. at the moment, where they're sort of defining what is your identity. Mm -hmm. I'd just be interested in what your definition of an individual's identity is. What, what is wow. identity? Okay, everyone's asking questions that last about an hour if they were answered properly. Yeah. Okay, well let's take let's start with the within and without because I think that's a, a very interesting interesting start. Um, some people, again, some of my detractors say, oh, they're inviolate, no one's going to damage their brain, they, they will decide if they take drugs or not, for example, um, without realizing how influenced one is by the environment. But by the same token, that environment is the product of our brains. It's a, a world that we've created. It's a world or you've all chosen, I hope, you haven't been forced here, you chose to come in and sit in a tent in the August, yeah? You chose to come into this environment. You've chosen how you're going to decorate your house, most usually. You know? So the, the mind 
determines to a greater extent the environment, and the environment in turn will shape the mind. So you have this two-way process. The one-way process I started off with as your child saying yuck and wow and yuck and wow and just having strong stations. The one-way street gradually becomes a two-way street and what we can't do is to point to just the human brain or just the environment as the trigger with the other thing reactive to it. It's this wonderful chicken and egg interrelationship. So my own view concerning identity is that we are shaped very much by our environment but by the same token it's our reaction to the environment, our unique portfolio of memories and dispositions that will then evolve. Um, my overview of identity is that it's an evolving concept and that you are different people to different things. So it's a much fuzzier rather than concrete um, concept. It's something that is unique to you, but that does evolve and change and get modified with everyone you meet, everything you do. You're different things to different people. And what I, what I etch out in the book are the different scenarios that are very extreme in terms of how our identity can change throughout our lives or at different times of the day almost, the identity of being the passive recipient of the senses where you relinquish your identity, you let yourself go, you blow your mind. The collective identity, if you go out on a hen night or a stag night or you're playing a football team or you're part of a family and you subsume your identity to a more collective narrative. In extreme cases, as we know, with extreme ideologies, that's taken um, to, some might think, very undesirable uh, consequences. Or the no one identity. So you have the someone, the no one, the anyone, or the one that I promote and, and encourage and would love to see more of, for me, the apotheosis of your true identity is creativity. You know that feeling when you see a connection that no one else has seen. You suddenly have an insight no one else has had. You don't have to be a scientist, although that's ideally what scientists do. You don't have to be a brilliant artist or a musician. It could be a social situation. It could be just suddenly seeing a new solution to how you rearrange a room. But that fabulous insight or breakthrough of seeing something in a new way, that eureka moment, for me, that is the most fulfilling way of being an individual and, and expressing you, an identity. You, you mentioned a fascinating um, other book in your book. Mm. Um, in fact, you very generously name-check a number of authors, but this was Howard Gardner's um, yes. talking about extraordinary minds. And, and what you seem to be saying, or what he seemed to be saying, was that these great geniuses of our day, whether they're in any of, of, mm -hmm. of the disciplines that you're talking about, is how they interact with their own discipline rather than the state of their original Neurological power, if you like. Yeah, I think that's really important, and not least because in this world that we're entering into, we haven't had time to talk about so-called transhumanism, which Good. is, you know, <laughs> which is um, improving yourself, you know, cognitive enhancers and so on. Um, what is a good brain? If you compare Mozart and Shakespeare, um, Beta, what have they got in and Einstein? What have they got in common? The fact that they're highly individual and original—that's what they have in common. They're different from each other, not that they're the same. So just having a good memory is not the same, I don't think, as having a good brain. A good brain is one that is individual and as original as possible. And if we can think of ways using technologies, using technologies to harness that for the maximum number of people, I think that would be the best kind of society. Now, this is almost an impossible request, but if somebody can ask a 30-second question and you can give a two-minute answer. Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> last question on the aisle there, then. Thank you. But it has to be brief, sir. No, down here. Oh, you're trying to get the mic back. Sorry. Thanks very much. Yes, there. Okay, a quick one. Do you think the human, do you see any sign that the human brain is evolving? If so, in what way? And if not, is it because the time scale? <laughs> <is> <laughs> um, I don't, there's no way that she's going to answer that in two minutes, and that's very naughty okay. of you. Okay, and I'll um, try, I'll try. Um, I don't think 
the, the whole point of the human brain, it's already, it adapts. That's what brains do. They adapt. So it doesn't need to evolve. It doesn't need to be bigger. It just needs to have as much potential and opportunity to prosper and be individual as possible. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's safe now to tell you I was really, really scared about this one. Um, <laughs> would you please all stay seated because uh, Susan's going to go left and left again, as you know, to the signing tent, and you'll be able to chat to her there and, um, and uh, talk to her and, and have copies of, of this book signed, ID, The Quest for Identity in the 21st Century. But please join me once more in thanking Susan Greenfield. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.